you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning begins a series on the gospel itself. You're answering the question, what is the gospel? What are the different ways to think about the gospel and why is it important? We began this series because it is a big question in Hebrews. And he answers it himself by the time we get to chapter 11. But he's been talking so much about the new covenant and Jesus being our great high priest. And hopefully those of you who have been here for those weeks, you understand what I'm referring to. But the big question for us is how is it that we enter this new covenant? How is it that Jesus becomes our great high priest? How is it that his sacrifice as the priest and the sacrifice, how is it that that counts for me? And it is the gospel. Additionally, the two values or words, phrases I put out there as the uh, goals of our church or emphases for our church this year is discipleship and unity. And these are obviously things that I've extended to you. You have to embrace them if they're to be truly values of our church. I can't just say that they are and they magically appear as values of our church. You have to take them to yourself. Unity and discipleship. We want to see, speaking of unity, how, how, do, how do I want this to happen? I want relational barriers to be torn down. I want to see relationships reconciled. I want to see petty differences set aside. I want to see new relationships begin based on what God has done in Christ. And I want to see a stunning increase in the kind of unity and love that we are to have and that we are commanded over and over and over and over again to show to each other. And that can only happen through the gospel. With discipleship, I want to see real and sustainable discipleship. A whole culture of real and sustainable discipleship. A culture of one-on-one -on -one Bible reading, as an example. Real growth in Christ. Maturing in the Lord. I want to see daily exhortation. That's why we spent so many weeks talking about exhort one another every day. I want to see that actually happen. want to see real growth happening instead of spiritual stagnation that we are all so prone to fall into. I want to see making disciples, not converts. 
real followers of Jesus, not people who can repeat a prayer. I want to see gospel-based and gospel-nurtured marriages. I want to see gospel-based and gospel-nourished parenting. This is discipleship. I want new disciples to be made, not by our creativity, planning, but by you actually getting up the gumption and courage and knowledge and passion to talk about the gospel to your neighbor, your co-worker, your friends. The only way we'll be able to do that is for us to be confident, to re-exert our confidence, to put energy into building our confidence in the gospel. To have any chance at any of those things in a way that really matters is lasting. It's not some mirage of the reality. We have to know what the gospel is. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. One day, I hope to go line by line or even word by word through this magnificent letter. This letter, Paul's letter to the Romans, has changed the course of history multiple times. And if you're paying attention to the highest levels of academia and theology, it's changing the course of history even now. I would love to talk about this wonderful man, Paul. I feel like he's a close friend to me. I would love to talk about how he saw himself as a slave, a bondservant. In fact, the first sermon I ever preached, or that Beth heard me preach, rather, was when I delivered over that very thing, Paul, a bondservant, slave of Jesus Christ. I would love to talk about his calling to apostleship, how significant that is for us today. I would love to talk about how Paul was set apart how this reality and his example of how he saw himself being set apart for this ministry, how that summons us to imitate him even as he imitates Christ. But I can't follow Paul's example and preach through the end of the night. But it might work. We don't have any high windows that people can fall out of, right? So no one would die. It wouldn't have to resurrection. There might be a, a game some of y'all want to watch. But today, we'll simply focus on the gospel. What is the gospel? Answering that question is not as easy as you might think. What do you think of when you hear the word gospel? Many of us, especially those of us who grew up in the South, we think of a genre of music. Gospel music. Is it just the story of the Bible in general? If someone says, what is the gospel? You just hand them a Bible? Is that the way we would answer it? Maybe you would just say John 3.16. It's good, it's essential, but it's not the full picture. And there are two senses in the Bible that the word gospel is used. One way is to speak of the broad scheme or plan of God for redemption of the entire creation that will ultimately culminate in glory. That's the broad sense of the gospel. 
But the narrow sense of the gospel is what is the entry point? Or how is it that I come into God's plan of redemption of all things? How is it that you, as a person, as an individual, not as part of a group, not as an American, not as a member of this church, as you, just you, how is it that you can enter the kingdom of God? So we'll be focusing on this narrow sense. What does it mean to believe in the gospel? We're commanded to believe in the gospel for salvation. Is believing, is, does believing in the gospel mean believing in God and praying to him? Does believing in the gospel mean believing that Jesus was real? Does believing in the gospel mean that we believe that he loves us? Does believing in the gospel mean that we know that one day he's returning? Those are all good and those are all essential, but that doesn't mean what it means to believe in the gospel. Is it simply this? You're not perfect. Say you're sorry. Jesus loves you. Do better. That's not the gospel, friends. There are many people, thousands, perhaps even millions, who attend church regularly and raise their hands in worship who believe that and have not been converted. The last thing I want to do as a pastor is to let that happen to anyone. The reason those are insufficient is that there is no mention of our need for righteousness. No mention of our total inability to gain righteousness. No mention of God's wrath. No cross, no blood, no substitution. No mention of true, holistic repentance, death to sin. So what is it? What is the good news of God? What is this gospel of God? We should go to the word of God to answer this question. On the back of your handout, if you have it, I listed several places in scripture, major sections of scripture there at the top that summarize the gospel, that include all the essential parts. Ephesians 2, 1-10, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5, Acts 2, 29-40, also Acts 13, 32-41, and 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. There are more, those are the ones that I could come up with quickly. But also, and most especially for our purposes this morning, since we're looking at Romans, is Romans 3, verses 21-26. If you would go ahead and turn there. Romans 3. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's a short definition. This is mine to try to even distill that even further. This is on the back of your handout. The gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God, the holy creator of all things, gives all the blessings of salvation, even the Holy Spirit, forever to those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus' death on the cross alone for forgiveness, satisfying God's wrath against them, and trust in Jesus' resurrection and life alone for righteousness. You can rearrange the phrases however you want. And this is from Greg Gilbert, uh, who's written a book, What is the Gospel? There are three copies. If you want one, you promise to read it and bring it back when you're done reading it. You can take it. And his track, What is the Gospel? He sets it up in a question and answer format. Who made us, and to whom are we accountable? We are accountable to God because God created everything. What is our problem? Our problem is our sin against him, meaning God. He, God, is determined never to ignore or tolerate sin. What is God's solution to our problem? God's solution is salvation through Jesus Christ. To take the punishment we deserve, Jesus died and he rose from the grave. And how can I be included in his solution? We come to be included in that salvation by faith and repentance. All our sins are credited to Jesus, who took the punishment for them, and the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been credited to us when we place our trust in what he has done for us. So Paul begins by saying, the gospel of God. And in both those definitions I gave you, God is the subject in both. He's the one doing the things. God's idea. The gospel is God's idea. We don't appropriate this blessing. We don't get together in a committee as humans. We feel like we have a problem and we put a plan together and say, hey God, how about you help us out in this way? and make this happen for us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and enemies of God, hating Him, that's when God put this plan of the gospel together to save us. The gospel is a pure grace. Pure divine initiation. marvel at the power of God in the gospel. If you've ever been in a meaningful relationship, maybe a spouse, mother, father, brother, sister, and there has been a significant chasm formed in that relationship, you know that it takes some effort on both parts to bring some kind of reconciliation before there can even be a plan of a way forward. Both sides have to lay down their arms and come together. Otherwise, it's just going to be years and years and years of waiting. God doesn't wait. In eternity, 
eternity past, he devised this plan to redeem and save his enemies. The power of God in the gospel is such that he makes a way for us to be saved totally on his own. And it is so wonderful, and the Spirit is so involved in its working, that the message itself warms our hearts and draws us in, even while we hold on to our weapons and our hostility against Him. The message itself is so powerful, we begin to loosen our grip on our anger and resistance and rebellion against God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Be confident in that message. I've seen it happen in people's faces the first time they've really understood what God does in the gospel and taking our sin, placing it on Christ, crushing him in our place and giving us his righteousness. That glorious exchange, the first time people really see that and understand it, their face changes. Even if they don't embrace it, they understand this is different than everything I've ever heard. Just as the old hymn says, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spot and melt the heart of stone. That power is the gospel. We will look at verses 16 and 17 from Romans 1. If you want to just look there quickly, this will be what the majority of our series will be about. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So for the rest of our time, just this morning as introduction, I want to bring you to your knees in worship, not literally, but in your heart. I want you to be brought to the point of worship. I want to stun your minds with wonder at the glorious gospel of God. I want to liberate the glorious gospel of God from the chains of pragmatism and self-esteem. I want to show you the glories of the gospel. So look at what Paul says, verse 2. which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is not plan B. The Old Covenant was not God's first attempt that failed. The Old Covenant prepared the way for the New Covenant. The law prepared the way for Christ. They aren't at odds. The law imprisoned everything under sin so that we could be liberated both from sin and the law in the life and death and resurrection of one who came to fulfill the law. Before the foundations of the world, this was the plan. Not a response or a reaction to man's fall. The whole idea of creation in the first place was to magnify and display God's grace before sin ever entered the picture. You can see that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. The whole plan of all creation was to magnify the grace of God. 
So for the thousands of years of Old Testament history, it's all about the gospel of God's glorious grace. Many of us have a very limited and travel-sized pack of the gospel that doesn't sustain the soul, and it doesn't carry us through troubled waters because we think that the gospel just shows up in the New Testament. And we don't feel the weight of God's wrath against sin that you see in the prophets. You don't see or sense or feel his rage against Israel for betraying him, for worshiping idols, even as he poured out his love and gracious overtures to them. So you don't feel that because you're not looking for the basis or foundation of the gospel and you think it might just come on the scene in the New Testament. You've got to re-embrace that all the way back to Genesis 3. God shows that this is his plan all along. The offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. You should feel gratitude for living in this time, understanding and seeing in full what all the prophets wish they could see and understand. Think of these holy men. Prophets, all of them. Moses, David, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Elijah, Elisha, all of them wish they could see what you see. Because God was showing them and building it, putting the foundations together for what you are in. You're in Christ. Verse 3, concerning his son, This is the gospel of God concerning his son. It's all about Christ. And what's important for us to see here is that the gospel only makes sense if God is one essence and three persons. The gospel exists and the gospel can work because God is Trinity. What do I mean by that? The gospel is nonsense. Utter nonsense unless we serve a triune God. This is God's Son. This is not God the Father who comes to die and for our sins. This isn't just some monotheistic God who works all these operations in different forms. Why must it be one essence, three persons? Because the one who punishes for sin cannot be the one who is being punished. That's the Father and the Son. The one who raises us from the dead, I'm sorry, the one who raises from the dead, rises from the dead, cannot be the one who is raised. That's the Spirit and the Son. You can't be in the grave waiting to be raised and the one who raises you up at the same time. You can't be the one who goes away so that the helper comes and be the helper at the same time. It doesn't work. We have Father, Son, and Spirit. One essence, one God, three persons. Great is the mystery of our faith. At the heart of it, the reason it works, the reason the gospel can be good news for you at all is because God is triune. He has a Son, an eternal Son, with whom He is well pleased, and He has sent Him as your substitute. This is why I get nervous and even upset on the radio, Christian authors, preachers, songs and people in person talk about God in a general way 
and never or hardly ever come to mention Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We don't just worship God at the title. Which God are you talking about? The one who's revealed in Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. The gospel is of God the Father, concerning and accomplished by His Son. In and through the Holy Spirit. We don't just want people to be theists and believe in God. We want them to be saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in their place. That, it's, that is a distinctly Christian message. If all your accomplishments to your people is to get them to be more holy and love God and pray to God, you've created twice worse a child of hell. A Pharisee, no less. No love in their heart and no reliance on the righteousness of Jesus Christ in their place. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, How many of you who have shared the gospel or given a talk or preached a sermon, how often is it that we mention this fact? Descended from David. You read through the New Testament, you'll actually be stunned at how many times the biblical authors, all of them, mention this fact. Peter, John, the author of Hebrews, we've seen it a lot. Descended from David. And just think about how this feels. Like as I read verses 1 through 7, does this feel like the gospel you talk to people about? Promised beforehand, concerning his son, descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power. These are magnificent words. This isn't a man-sized gospel. This is big and ancient and life-giving because it's real and it's been there for all eternity as the plan. Why is this important to be descended from David? We see this very clear in Hebrews. The eternal covenant to David is that he would never lack a man on the throne. Forever, David, one of his sons, would rule. God's eternal promise to David is fulfilled in his son. Friends, a forever king will come. This necessarily implies the subjugation of all of his enemies, the end of all other nations, the redemption of the world, and the eternality of our inheritance. Just that one promise, that he is in fact the son of David, that all of these promises to David are fulfilled. We have a king we have a king. He's real. Not just a mystical, mystical, divine Santa in the sky who helps us sometimes if we pray the right words using the right phrases when things are hard. We have a king. A glorious and exalted king in heaven who will come one day to put an end to all rule and authority and everything that is in opposition to him. Today, you have a king. He is one day returning to reward and even serve his servants who have been faithfully and patiently readying themselves for his return. 
brothers and sisters, swear fealty to this king today. No sacrifice made in the service of this great king will not be met with 100 and 1,000 fold reward. There is a life that can be lived that is in service to this king. There are choices you can make every day that are either for the service of this king or the service of yourself. The choice is before you. And more than that, more than just being the son of David, the eternal son of God is also the son of David, according to the flesh. This is the incarnation. The great mystery of our faith, faith intensifies. The eternal son of God became man. The I am became the son of David in the flesh. He didn't just appear. He didn't just manifest himself in his presence and his person. He really took on flesh and became a man. And he is human now. And he will forever be human. And he has never stopped being God. And will be forever the I am. Great is the mystery of our faith. And this is the core of Christianity. That's why we spent in our Advent guide for Sunday school 25 days reflecting on the glory of the incarnation. It's that important. If you want to read more about this, you can read On the Incarnation by Athanasius or The Glory of Christ by John Owen. This is what John Owen says. Here lies the foundation of the church. The foundation of the whole old creation was laid in an act of absolute sovereign power. Hereby God hanged the earth on nothing. But the foundation of the church is on this mysterious, immovable rock. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. On the most intimate conjunction of two natures, the divine and human, in themselves infinitely distinct, yet in the same person. Verse 40. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He's declared, proclaimed to be the Son of God. In many different ways, Jesus proved he was the Son of God. The Father also declares from heaven that Jesus is his eternal Son. There are three different times in the life of Christ that this happens, where the Father declares from heaven that Jesus is his eternal Son. And here they are. This is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. That is baptism by John. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him at the Mount of Transfiguration. And in answer to his prayer, Father, glorify your name. The voice from heaven says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. As if to say, yes, son, I have, and I will. But there's even a more significant way in which Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. Verse says, in power according to the spirit of holiness. Not just a voice from heaven, a demonstration of his divine power. He had authority over the demons. He 
the unclean spirits. He had power over sickness. He had dominion over death. He had superiority over the wisdom of the world. And he had rights over the lives of people. Can you just change your name? No questions. Follow me, and you must. Power. And not just power in general. All of this is in the power of the Spirit. Jesus does everything in the power of the Spirit. In the synagogue in Capernaum, when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61, he says, the Spirit of God is upon me. And that same Spirit, brothers and sisters, through the gospel is given to you. The same Spirit by which Jesus exercised his power and dominion and authority, that's in you through the gospel. In the beginning, the definition I gave you, the Spirit is the greatest blessing of salvation. Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus promises, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. He even commands them, receive the Holy Spirit, right before he's taken back into heaven. And then Peter, as he's preaching, the great conclusion of Peter's sermon at Pentecost is, repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Have you received him? If you're a Christian, you have received him. If you do not have any evidences of having received the Spirit, you're not a Christian. There's no reason for you to think so, because that is the promise of salvation. It is the greatest and first blessing of salvation to receive the Holy Spirit of God. Not just the Spirit, the Spirit of holiness. Here's how we know if we have received the Holy Spirit. Have you received Him? Do you have new desires that are from God? Do you desire to put to death sin in your life every day? Do you cry out to God as Father from the heart? Do you love God? Has the love of God been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you? Do you desire holiness above all things? Do you seek any fruit of the Spirit in your life? Not perfection. Not at all. And not until God gives us new bodies. But joyful, hungry, and at some time agonizing desire to have more of God and to be more holy like Him. That is the work of the Spirit in you. If there are none of these evidences, then the gospel you have believed is a false gospel, or you're merely deceiving yourselves that you believe the true gospel. And if none of this makes any sense to you, what I've said, I have good news for you. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Don't navel-gaze and say, I don't see anything that I'm so confused. Today can be the day of salvation for you. He's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. 
This is the ultimate validation and vindication of Jesus. His resurrection. All that he said, all that he claimed to be, the meaning and purpose of all of his miracles. He didn't just die on the cross. He didn't just take away sins. He was buried and he was raised. You've got to finish the story. And he lives today. He's alive. He is alive. And that is the most significant truth in all human history. And I would add, it is the most provable historical fact. What does this mean for us? The gospel is built on the finished work of Christ and him taking us into life with him. A dead Jesus can't save you. Heaven is not your destiny unless Jesus is there right now because you go where he goes in him. He's alive. And believing in Jesus is not just forming in your own imagination a shape of Jesus and believing in that. The eyes of your heart must see the real resurrected Christ. Have you built a Jesus of your own design? One who treats sin differently than the real Jesus. Many times people say, well, the Jesus I know wouldn't this or wouldn't that. If it's not the biblical Jesus, it's just your imagination or something worse. And an idol all the time. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. His resurrection from the dead proves that he is Lord. He says, before Abraham was, I am a person who claims to be Yahweh and utters, if he's just a man, the most preeminent blasphemy you could ever say, a person who does that doesn't get raised from the dead and vindicated by God. He claimed to be Yahweh. Don't let the Discovery Channel or the History Channel tell you anything different. He claimed to be the I Am, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he was raised from the dead. Vindication that he is who he said he was. The gospel is incomplete if we do not understand just how life-changing that statement is. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is he your Lord? Repentance, or obeying Jesus as Lord. That's what real repentance is. Obeying Jesus as Lord is the true test of faith. Again, not perfectly until we're taken home and this corrupt body is finally put off and the old man is finally put to death. But desire, hunger, agonizing want to be like Christ. That's the true test of repentance. It's the true test of faith that you would obey Jesus as Lord. And he's not just your Lord. He's our Lord. This is where our unity rests. Jesus Christ, 
our Lord, that Christian brother or sister that you simply cannot stand or don't want to hang out together, they have the same Lord as you. They worship and serve the same Jesus you do. That should be more of a cause of unity and fellowship than anything else in your life. Belong to the same Lord. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace. This is the gospel of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, friends, so much frustration, anxiety, fear, disappointment, and discouragement could be avoided if you would embrace the grace-centered worldview. What's the source of all frustration? Unmet expectations. The gospel of grace says that in Christ, your highest expectations are far too small to understand the glory to be revealed in you and given to you. What is the source of anxiety? Uncertainty, perhaps, about the future and the pressures that we have as we get there? The gospel of grace says that in Christ, all of our days, with the pressures and uncertainty, are preparing us for unending joy in Christ. And what is the source of all unhealthy or ungodly fear? When people are big and God is small, as the book says. Unbelief. The gospel of grace says that in Christ, he gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to one day give life to our mortal bodies. Why would you fear man in whom there is no breath? source of all discouragement. When we have an earthbound or a curse-bound perspective, the gospel of grace says that Jesus will return again one day and put an end to all evil and make all things new. The key to seeing the world that way and allowing those truths to give you strength and life in your inner being is to know it as grace. You don't earn this. You don't merit it. You don't deserve it. So the fact that it is given to you freely and joyfully on God's part changes everything. You and I deserve unending anguish in hell perpetual death, because that is exactly what it means to reject God, who is the giver of all good things. And sin is a rejection of him. The wages of rejecting the life giver is to be severed from life. It only makes sense. But in grace, so undeserving, we have received all things. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also give us all things? You've been given the best thing ever. 
of the best thing possible in any possible world, Jesus Christ. So everything else then must be yours because you have the best thing there is. And all of grace, you don't earn that. It's just been given to received by faith. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. We don't have time to discuss because apostleship is very important. is this. Why did he receive grace? Why are we receiving grace? Why did Paul receive apostleship? Two. Why the little words in your, in your Bible are really important. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to to this end, to bring about the obedience of faith. Saving faith cannot be just in your head or just in your heart. It must work itself out in obedience. This is the only proper life of a person who has truly believed that Jesus is Lord. Just read 1 John or James. A faith that says, I know God or I love God and does not keep the commands of Christ is a liar. And this is not hard to understand. It's just that the implications for life and ministry are hard to apply. Even Jesus himself, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right now, in this moment, beware of the enemy awakening the legalist in you. Even though the goal is to bring about the obedience of faith, and obedience is the test of true conversion and belief in the gospel, it is not on the basis of a changed life that we are saved. Your holiness post-conversion is not the basis on which you are saved. So maybe your response in your heart, right after everything I've just said is, I need to do better, I need to try harder, I need to believe with more conviction. And maybe you do, but that's not what saves you. Even if someone like Paul, the apostle, were to bring his own righteousness after becoming a Christian to be the basis of his salvation, he would be in hell right now. Because your righteousness, even with the help of the Holy Spirit, isn't enough to save you. So what should you do? Abandon hope in your righteousness. Just abandon it. You can't be good enough. Abandon hope in your ability to do better. Throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. Cling to Him. And there, in that loss of confidence in self, and utter dependency on Him, you will find yourself made righteous. bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. I'll try to limit what I say here because this is the fountainhead of everything, literally. So there's too much to say here now or even for a lifetime. But let this phrase be the foundation of your soul. 
God's purpose in creating the world and all of his acts, including salvation, is for his glory in Christ. That's it. For the sake of his name. This is such good news for us. The gospel is not primarily about us. It's about God. It is the gospel of the grace of God. It's good news for us precisely because God has put his own fame and glory at stake in your salvation. He has married forever, joined his glory, his namesake, and your good and eternal joy. And the power and will and all of his creativity and wisdom dedicated to his glory and namesake in Christ is now dedicated to your joy in him forever. God has chosen to demonstrate forever the goodness and majesty of his grace in redeeming a people for himself and being their God forever in Christ. If you will trust in Christ, repenting of your sin, and believe in the gospel, then God commits himself to your eternal good and joy. With the very same energy that he has committed to his own glory. For the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, God's mission is worldwide. Jesus deserves all their praise. So we must take the gospel everywhere. It is for the sake of his name among all the nations. Jesus is that glorious of a Savior, that glorious of a God, so he deserves worship everywhere from every type of person, every family, every nation. He is not just a Jewish Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world. Including us. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is your calling. Christians love to talk about calling and there is a sense in which we should seek what the Lord wants us to do with our lives. But the most important calling for every Christian is to belong to Jesus Christ. Don't get distracted by thinking that your main calling is something else. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel makes the end goal for us to belong to Jesus Christ. That you and I would be a people of God forever. Be people of God forever. Belonging to him is enough for your whole life. You give direction, meaning, and purpose to every decision. And he doesn't leave us there. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The love of God is manifested especially to those who are in Christ. He delights in his holy ones. He inhabits the praises of his people. We bring him joy directly. 
as it results in praise and obedience from the heart. But as if it were not enough to tell us that we are called to belong to Jesus, he clarifies further, we're called to be saints. What this means is that we're called to be holy, brothers and sisters. Saints is not just a special class of Christians. You are all called to be saints. Called to be holy. You are called to be God's holy ones. You just do a word search in the New Testament of all the times the word called occurs, referring to your life, it means this. Called to be holy. To live a life consecrated to the Lord. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That is your call. Yes, you'll have to find a job, and you'll have to marry someone, and you'll have to live somewhere. But all in the context, all as you seek to be God's holy ones. And anything that doesn't help you be one of God's holy ones, in truth, get it out of your life. Because that is your calling. Even if it's not a sin. And the gospel makes this all possible. The gospel is the power of God for holiness as well. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are ending where we started with grace. This is the gospel of God. It's his idea. It's his initiation. It's his gift. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. It's all grace to be received by faith. And it accomplishes peace. Only in the gospel do we get the peace we really need and the grace we really need from God. Peace with God when you don't feel very peaceful. The peace of God even when your life is falling apart. All from God. So this is really good news. Everything I've said, I hope you can see it as good news. This great and glorious gospel, my point and my goal is to show you, to stagger your minds, to see some of the bigness and glorious nature of the gospel today. To rebuild your confidence in this message. So looking ahead, going again to verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul, why are you saying that you're not ashamed of the gospel? It's the best news ever. It's the most glorious message that we've ever heard. Why should you take time to say, I'm not ashamed of it? We'll discuss that next week. Just for application before we conclude. There really isn't another appropriate application than this. You need to repent and believe in the gospel. Between you and the Lord, if you know you haven't or have, repent and believe in the gospel today. Stop playing games with God. 
day must be the day of salvation. You've heard a clear explanation of how it is that God saves us through the gospel. This is the entry point into all of God's blessings. Repent and believe in the gospel today. Why would you persist? 